Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the City Metric Podcast. I'm Barbara. And I'm John. And this week we're talking about when cities attack. We really would like to have a memorial of Seneca Village, and the form that that would take, of course, doesn't depend on us. It would take, you know, depend on, obviously, lots of different groups. And when this nightclub fire happened, and tens of thousands of people demonstrated not only against the failure of local authorities to really not foresee that such a thing should happen, and also for some kind of indirect guilt in allowing it to happen, they called for the government itself to resign, and the government and Bucharest was in quite a fragile position anyway. So there's this idea you encounter quite a lot in, in, in the world of urbanism, that cities can save the world. This comes from a, a, a book by an academic called Benjamin Barber, which I read last summer, which is, you know, it's, it's actually a pretty exciting idea, this idea that, you know, the world's nation-states are not capable of, of solving things like you know, the environmental catastrophe that's kind of bearing down upon us or, or migration crises or whatever. But actually, a lot of these problems, environmental and economic and so on, are soluble at the city level. And, you know, also cities have to solve problems. Like if, you, if you're a president or a prime minister, you can spend all your time kind of making your opponents look bad. But if you're a mayor, you've got to get the bins emptied. Um, so Barber's conclusion is the way of kind of creating a sort of global governance structure is to create a sort of p- global parliament of mayors where, you know, the people who represent most of the world's population can get in the room and just solve everything. And I find that a pretty exciting idea. I don't know about you. Yeah. What I think is funny about it, though, is that the context is that there are all these mayors who are really keen for there to be a world parliament of mayors. And when you start talking about a few very powerful figures getting together in a room and between them solving lots of problems, you start getting onto like dictator territory i mean lots of mayors are now directly elected and i think that can be what's appealing about them because you have kind of the better parts of democracy while also allowing quite a big personality to carry out big plans but i guess the problem is what are those plans who is that person which i think when you look at mayors like even boris johnson that can start getting a bit disturbing because maybe his plans are all huge infrastructure projects beginning with a B. But um, you, should, you should be nice to Boris. He's done lots of great stuff. There's, there's that cable car which goes to nowhere. The there's... bus which is too hot to go in in the summer. The giant bridge that's going to 
blow yeah, off the, into the, the sea. which Joanna Lumley's have got a great plan. There was the airport which he didn't get built that he wanted to put in an island in the, in the English. He's You're done right, all I'm being fan- totally unfair. You're, you're being incredibly unfair. He's been a fantastic mayor. I mean, I think there's something in that, that at a national level, um, a lot of these kind, I mean, maybe not so much now we're living in the age of Donald Trump, but the national, in national politicians, these kind of rough edges seem to get sort of smoothed down a little bit, whereas uh, city politicians seem more likely to be these kind of huge figures, these huge personalities, and these, these are natural eccentrics. Yeah, and I think that you're a lot more likely to let loose someone like that on your city as a voter than on your country, even though, ironically, they probably will get more done before they're stopped. I mean, Rob Ford is a good example. Who is the mayor of Toronto. Yeah, in Canada, um, who was essentially pretty unhinged. Like, he's pushed over council members in the council chamber. He used to roam around car parks, sticking magnets with his name on onto people's cars. He was (laughs) sacked as a high school football coach twice and yet remain the mayor of one of the largest cities in Canada. So you kind of wonder how how these guys do it, really. Yeah, so I think it does seem that maybe you can kind of justify having a slightly silly figure as a mayor because um, it's a relatively small canvas. But I think within a city, a mayor can actually make quite a, a significant amount of difference. I mean... Your city government can have a very direct effect on where you live, like the, the the infrastructure they choose to build, the services they choose to put in place. It's all very close to home in a way that national policies often aren't. Yeah, and that can be good because actually mayors, whatever their faults, probably have quite a good idea of what might be needed. They tend to live in the city um, what, what, which they're governing, which you obviously can't live everywhere if you're a national politician. And so you can bring in infrastructure projects. I mean, for Boris's faults, he has done things. I mean, new buses, some people do like the new buses and they see that as quite an exciting symbol of change and new new things that they actually use. Have, have you met any of these people? Are they, these, <laughs> I've, these heard, largely I've theoretical. heard of them on the internet. <laughs> yeah, they, they hang out in the same place as the unicorns, I think. Yeah. But I mean, a story that we did about a year ago now, I think, um, I think really captured people's imaginations because it was about one of these huge infrastructure projects which now we think of very positively, which is Central Park in New York City. Um, and I came across a project that was run by, um, well, kind of founded by a couple of archaeologists who found out that there was a community on the area, which is now Central Park, in the 1850s, which was about two-thirds uh, African-American landowners. Um, which is interesting in itself because the idea of a kind of African-American middle class, which is essentially what that would mean at that time. Um, it's, it's, it's just not the mental image you have. Of yeah, it doesn't fit with the, US, the narrative. It, and yeah. in fact, the reason it might not fit with our narrative is that this community through um, something called the right of eminent domain was kicked off its land by the city government in order to make way for this huge park, which was seen as progressive, which brought green space into what is a very small peninsula and now is kind of loved by everyone. But you hit that same problem where you're kind of like, yes, what a great, you know, they, they, they swept away everything in their path and then did this huge project. But then those people were kind of left. And so I interviewed um, now a couple of times an archaeologist called Diana Wall, who um, has kind of made it her project to both excavate the area where the community lived, but also try and find out what happened to these people. And I guess the saddest part is that most of that community went and lived somewhere else, so they weren't in the same place they may no longer have owned land and that kind of whole community was lost. So I've actually spoken to her again about the way the project is rolling on now. Let's hear from Diana. 
This is a Brooklyn-bound A express train. The next stop is Dykeman Street. This is a 125th Street-bound A express train. The next stop is 59th Street, Columbus Circle. So, I mean, is it right to say that project was partly inspired by the fact that the city of New York hadn't done much to commemorate this community's existence before, that, that it was only very recently that a plaque was erected in Central Park Yes, itself. that's certainly true. We were particularly interested in, in starting the Seneca Village Project because the position of African Americans in the city's history, and in fact in the history of the northern part of the United States, has tended to be ignored if not actually denied. In the 18th century, almost a quarter of the population of New York City was of African descent. What ways are you hoping to improve recognition and also knowledge about the community through the project? We really would like to have some uh, a memorial of Seneca Village in, and uh, the form that that would take, of course, doesn't depend on us. It would take, you know, depend on, obviously, lots of different groups in the city. Today, there's a, a, a typical park plaque which, don't get me wrong, is very nice, but we would just like to have something something more than that, some sort of an exhibit, perhaps, or memorial to the people of Seneca Village, something like that. And you carried out excavations, is that right? Of we did. We buildings. excavated in Seneca Village in 2011, and we are working with students from the New York City area. We were in the field excavating for eight weeks over the summer. And we found two really exciting things. One was the foundation wall and uh, deposits associated with the house belonging to a man whose name was William Godfrey Wilson. He was a sexton of one of the churches in Seneca Village. That church was All Angels Church, which was right next to us. Wilson lived there with his wife and with his eight children. It was a three-story house. In addition to that, we uncovered a lot of domestic materials, pieces of ceramics and things like that that they left behind, also a kettle, a roasting pan, things like that. And then we had one discovery that we made in the, in the laboratory when we were processing the artifacts that we didn't really expect, which was a curry comb, um, which is a, uh, an instrument that's used for grooming horses, suggesting that they had a horse or perhaps the church had a horse that they took care of. We don't really know, obviously, that. But it's suggesting that, you know, a horse is part of the story of the Wilsons and their stay in uh, in Seneca Village. The other thing that was curious about the curry comb is that most of us who are working on this project are city folk, and we don't really know about horses or curry combs. But we happened to be processing the artifacts in a lab at Columbia University, and there was a young woman there who was also looking at artifacts from another site, and she was from Texas. said, oh, that's a curry comb. And we went, oh, <laughs> because, of course, we hadn't known. <laughs> yeah. So do we have any idea, I mean, where that family might have gone or how far they would have We traveled? do. Uh, in fact, the church itself, All Angels Church, moved over to West End Avenue, and, in fact, they took the building with them. In other words, they dismantled and rebuilt the building over on West End Avenue, which is about four blocks away, over much closer to the river, or the Hudson River, than uh, than Central Park. And uh, the Wilsons moved over there also. In other words, uh, the the church seemed to be their magnet, and because and presumably Wilson continued to work at the church. But unfortunately, many of the congregants wouldn't have. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, we know that some of them moved down into what is now the Soho neighborhood, uh, you know, into into other other parts of the city or parts of Queens, which at that point was not part of New York City itself. And are you guys thinking of putting together kind of a book or a film or anything? We're interested in doing a film, and in fact, we shot a lot of footage when we were doing the excavations. And what we need to do is to raise money. What we're working on right now is finishing the technical report, which has taken us a long time because, of course, everybody has been, you know, doing their jobs and working on Seneca Village in their on their off time, so to speak. So we haven't had that much time to devote to it. But what we do want to do is finish that report, and then what we want to concentrate on is raising money to get the uh, the footing that we have made it, made into a film. And we were also interested, uh, Nan Rothschild and I, in writing a book for the public about Seneca Village and the excavations there. We, what we'd love is for Seneca Village to get into the school curriculum, and we'd also love, of course, for there to be a memorial in the park. One, one thing that we've been looking for and that we haven't really found yet is a descendant of, in other words, someone whose ancestors actually lived in Seneca Village. And we think that that would make the story even more powerful than it is already. We're planning to hire a genealogist to what I think of as a reverse genealogy to start with the people of Seneca Village and trace them down through time. I mean, obviously, it's a fascinating story, especially if you're interested in the history of New York. But it's also kind of a sort of individual case. What do you think makes it so significant in kind of the history of the U.S. or urbanism or even race? I think that what's really important about it is I think that there have been a lot of Seneca villages. There have been a lot of African-American communities, and they've been, they've been forgotten. Think of African-American history in the United States. First of all, we think of African-Americans living in the, in the South on plantations, not in the North, and there was a big African-American presence in the North. And Seneca Village, I think having an archaeological site like that brings home that fact in a very good way. And also, I suppose that we imagine that cities are so kind of permanent and we know what's there and what's always been there, but there's these kind of other histories. Yes, these these histories that have been marginalized. This is a Euclid Avenue-bound F train via the A line. The next stop is Nostrand Avenue. This is a Brooklyn-bound F train via the B line. The next stop is Grand Street. What I find interesting about that story, which um, I, I should say has actually been one of our most successful stories ever, it's, uh, it, it periodically reappears on Facebook and starts getting read by huge numbers of, of people who've clearly just never heard the story before, which is quite, you know, it's quite nice for a, a growing website like us. Um, but one of the things that kind of stands out to me about it is the law of eminent domain is kind of what we'd call in Britain a compulsory purchase, where you know, there's a major public works scheme and there's some private property in the way and you just have to get rid of it to, uh, to make the scheme happen. Um, and that's obviously awful if you're one of the people whose homes is, is being demolished, but it's kind of necessary. It's like you need a regime like that to, to get anything done. I think like the reason, as we were talking about at the top of the program, that, that so many of the world's problems are soluble in cities is because you can kind of marshal those forces. Um, so, you know, this kind of thing where actually sometimes people get a little bit crushed underfoot, that's not a bug, that is a feature of how cities work. It just depends how you kind of leverage that power and how you decide. 
Because I think that maybe the argument is that in that particular context, it's not that a park should never have been built. It's that a particularly unfortunate side effect of that park being built is that something that was very good was basically destroyed. So they could have built it in a slightly different place, for example. But you're right, I think that the, the idea that you should never, ever try and build something on a place that people had once lived is probably wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think that the reason that story uh, strikes such a nerve uh, is precisely because it's a largely African-American village and it kind of fits with this whole sort of metaphorical idea that the US was built on, on the, the back of this black population. So it kind of very much kind of fits in with that. Um, if it had been a, a, a white village, I don't think it would have had the same effect because people do get forced out of their homes to build stuff in cities and elsewhere all the time. Yeah, and equally because I think if you're an underprivileged community, the existence of community is hugely helpful to you. Whereas, I mean, New York at the time was a, a huge kind of a melting pot of all kinds of people and lots of white working class people, for example. And I think that perhaps moving a tenement block or something um, with full of Irish immigrants. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Perhaps wouldn't have had such a destructive effect. I think... Also, I mean, you get a lot of complaints about, you know, people talking about health and safety and rules and regulations and so on. But actually, you do need those things for a, for a city to make. It's another way in which cities are actually kind of quite useful political organisms that they can actually sort of enforce particular standards so that people aren't living in hovels or so that buildings aren't going to fall down or, or you know, that kind <laughs> of thing. Again, that's something that's much hard to do at a national level, but you can actually kind of create rules and enforce within a city, I think. Yeah, and that, I mean, that obviously can go in a bad way as well as a good one. I mean, a good example is um, the recent earthquake in Nepal, which I think was... It was um, last April, I believe. Yeah, and there was a huge devastation, especially in Kathmandu, which is Nepal's capital city. And at the time, it was taken very much as a, na- a sort of natural disaster. But what was interesting was that the voices coming out of Kathmandu, and I think we had a piece on this, was saying this is actually a municipal disaster. This, mm. The reason these buildings collapsed was that on the face of it, because there was a huge earthquake, 
but actually they weren't built to standard. The city hadn't taken its role of enforcing safety standards on an incredibly earthquake-prone area. So it, it was an interesting kind of demonstration of that rule, I suppose. Yeah, we, we had a piece uh, a few months before that, in fact, by uh, a Nepalese journalist called Rubina Mahato, who was at that point studying at the University of Oxford, basically just saying, you know, Nepal is hit by a major earthquake every 70 or 80 years, and it's due four months later true to form it happened and 8,000 people died and a lot of that was because of poor building standards because yeah, stuff had been planning. thrown up yeah no acknowledgement of those risks and the fact that money spent in the right way could have saved thousands of lives but yeah there's there's often I think you know during development booms or you know, if there's a housing crisis or whatever there is often pressure to kind of throw this stuff up so that people can have somewhere to live and so developers can make a quick and and you know Risks that only come round once every 80 years or can seem a bit sort of imaginary, can't they? Yeah, yeah, that's the thing, that you don't need this stuff until you do. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have a lot of foresight, I think, to understand how important it is. There's another city that's facing this kind of 80-year earthquake risk that's, that's rather close to home, so we should probably hear from someone who lives there. My name is Michael Bird. I'm a journalist currently resident in Bucharest, the capital of Romania. Uh, late last year, there was a very tragic nightclub fire in Collective. There was a death metal rock band playing, and they had a fireworks display within the nightclub, a few sparks, let's say. And this caught alight the uh, interiors of the nightclub, and uh, around 70 people died from burns and from suffocation inside the club and out and later, for many months later. And there was a huge indignation among the population about how this was handled and how the people were looked after as well by the local authorities. And what this fire resulted in was it resulted in many people demonstrating against the local authorities uh, who they believed were guilty for in some way causing this fire to happen. Because what happens in Bucharest is there is a huge informal culture where the fire authorities have not really made the proper regulations, the nightclubs where people go out don't have proper fire exits, and a lot of them also are at huge risk of an earthquake. And... Um, the other problem that you have in the city is that nearly everyone in Bucharest has what I would say every single family in Bucharest has been touched by corruption in some way. Either they have had to pay civil servants and local authorities money under the table for planning permission, or they have had to pay doctors under the table for basic services which should be free at the point of access, or they have had to bribe the headmistresses of kindergartens in order to get their two or three-year-old children a place in preschool which should also be free at the point of access. And there's this latent indignation which has built up over many decades. And when this nightclub fire happened, this really came to the fore. 
and tens of thousands of people demonstrated not only against the failure of local authorities to really not foresee that such a thing should happen and also for some kind of indirect guilt in allowing it to happen that they called for the government itself to resign and the government in Bucharest was in quite a fragile position anyway but they felt they could not deal with days and days of people demonstrating again and again and there was huge power vacuum and now the country is led by a technocratic government You've used the phrase the government in Bucharest a few times. I assume when you do that you mean the national government in Bucharest. The national, the national government in Bucharest. Yeah. So to what extent the things like you know, building rigs and you know, whether buildings are safe, whose responsibility is that? Is that, is that really a matter of national politics? Is it the, the mayor not doing his job? I mean, what's the... Well, the mayor of Bucharest is responsible for the, uh, for the buildings in the city which are at earthquake risk or at fire risk and also there's different borough mayors who are also responsible for those uh, building regulations. But on the whole, you have a situation whereby for too many years people have given money under the table to get permits, people have been lackadaisical in trying to actually impose proper regulations upon upon the city and also uh, a lot of owners themselves of these kind of buildings have also been guilty as well in not really securing the buildings well enough for their customers but this was almost epidemic an epidemic rate within the city and now what you have is you have this uh, huge reaction so you have Dozens and dozens of clubs are now closing down. Dozens of uh, shops have closed down because they're in uh, earthquake risk buildings. So you have this almost this kind of tsunami of closure happening on the city at the moment, which is going to be very um, well. It is at the moment terrible uh, news for uh, sort of small business owners and this kind of thing. But at the same time, you have a situation where there's uh, huge opportunities. Uh, to be able to create new, new businesses, uh, new developments in this city as well. You've mentioned the earthquake risk a couple of times. My understanding is that Bucharest is, you know, in Europe at least, it's one of the cities that's in greatest danger of that of, of you know earthquake-based disaster. To what extent is everyone sort of worrying about that? Well, How big a danger is the city in here? Yeah, usually um, earthquakes in Bucharest are due sort of every 25 to 50 years, I think. And there was a big earthquake in 1941, and there was a big earthquake in 1977, which indicates that there should be another one due very soon. In fact, it's been quite lucky there hasn't been a big one. What happens, actually, is that it's about 200 kilometres away from Bucharest, there's an uh, area where they have the big earthquakes. It's an area called Vrancha in the east of the country. That's where the earthquakes happen. But we'll put this way. Bucharest is like any capital city in Europe. It has a lot of very tall buildings. And it should not have a lot of very tall buildings because it's, it's, it's a risk of earthquakes. And no one's really quite sure how secure those 10, 20-storey buildings are because they haven't been tested in an actual earthquake. So nobody knows quite how much trouble the city's going to be in until the earthquake happens? No one knows quite how much trouble it's going to be in. But, I mean, talking to sort of people in the insurance industry, you're dealing with tens of billions of, uh, of potential uh, uh, losses there. You're dealing with huge amounts of potential uh, destruction which could happen in that city. 
but it is an estimation. The city is beginning to actually kind of wake up to this possible threat, but uh, we'll have to see. Is there any chance that the the events in, in the nightclub fire and the protests that followed will, will kind of make people more likely to address the earthquake threat? They, they are they are addressing it. They are addressing the earthquake threats. They're, they're becoming much more conscious about this, and there will be elections in May for a new mayor, and I think this will be one of the key issues which will come up in the uh, in the elections whether or not people uh, whether or not the city is safe from an earthquake and also uh, whether or not the city is safe from corruption because you're dealing with a situation whereby the city has a budget of around 1 billion euro and 300 million of that is estimated to be lost to corruption so almost a third of the city budget for a city of 2 million people just disappears into the pockets of small officials Last time we, we didn't have a map of the week because it was all it was all maps. It didn't see, it, we couldn't pick a favourite child. Um, but but it, we're back with that segment this week. Um, and this week we are looking at uh, it's not really a map. In fact, it's a sort of aerial photograph of Berlin in which you can actually see the divide between East and West Berlin even from space. Um, and the reason is that they have different coloured streetlights either side of, of where the wall used to be. So. Uh, so uh, East Berlin, I think, has has this kind of sort of warm, slightly orangey streetlights, whereas West Berlin had had white ones. And it's kind of fascinating that even now, 25 years after the the wall came down, you can look. Tim Peake should he have felt the need could have kind of looked down and sort of said, oh, there's there's where the Berlin Wall used to be, which is uh, pro- probably not from that high. Actually, I'm probably exaggerating. <laughs> yeah, it's, maybe if, maybe if he had binoculars. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about it is that, I mean, obviously it's surprising that in 2013 that was still the case. Um, and so there was kind of a lot of reporting around this map and a someone who was part of the city government told The Guardian that um, the reason is basically that the lamps are still different colours because there's still not kind of enough money to equalise the resources on kind of both sides of the city. So um, it's kind of as simple as that, really. Yeah, I suppose that will change over the next few years as gradually stuff gets replaced, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And kind of also on the subject of maps of Berlin, I think what's equally interesting is to look at maps that existed while the wall still stood because they all do this kind of really funny... They either try and pretend that that the other side doesn't exist, so you'll have maps of West Berlin which just kind of seamlessly join onto the rest of Germany um, or vice versa. And um, it's the, even the subway maps, you would just kind of go... If you were going under mm-hmm. one half of the city that you weren't meant to be going to, it would just kind of travel through stations and then you would come up where yeah, you were expecting to go yeah because one of the one of the uh, U-Bahn lines actually sort of ran from West Berlin to West Berlin via East Berlin and it just didn't stop so, yeah right. yeah there's this fantastic slightly creepy maps of, of the, the East Berlin uh, U-Bahn network which just pretend that West Berlin isn't there which is slightly disturbing but, uh, yeah I guess it's a, a good demonstration of the fact that maps rarely show what's there they just show what we want to be there <laughs> what we think is there there you go that's where you should read City Metric the power of the map <laughs> Thank you. 
You've been listening to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. It was presented by John Elledge and Barbara Speed and produced by Royfield Brown. Our theme music is Dust from the Stars by Charlie Charles. You also heard The Weather by Destinazione Altrove and Embryonic Waves, composed by Matthew Reitzel. All music in the show is licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast and on iTunes, where you'll also find two more shows by our excellent colleagues, Seriously and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps and geography you could possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter and on Facebook, where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. And if you wanted to leave a review to tell your friends how lovely we are, well, we'd very much appreciate that. Thanks for listening. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. 지하서울역입니다. 내리실 문은 오른쪽입니다. 명동, 한국이라서.